We are in this sermon series. It's just second weekend. So if you're new around here, you are in luck. You're in the right place. Um, we're just one week into the sermon series. And here's, where, here's, here's what it is. is, is uh, I've been doing some studying lately um, over these, these last months, and I learned that the early church... The early church for centuries would, when Easter came, they wouldn't just do one Easter Sunday, that there'd be this big Easter Sunday. Then for the next eight or so weeks, they would just spend time talking about the reality of the resurrection and the implications of it. What does it mean? And so that's what we're going to do as a church. We're just going to take the next few weeks. And we had Easter and we celebrated the empty tomb. But... There's, so, there's some key passages in the New Testament that just tease out the implications. And for these early followers of Jesus, these people who saw Jesus alive, walking around Jerusalem, they were, they were so impacted that, that later on when they were writing the New Testament and they were writing these letters and writing their eyewitness accounts of, of what they experienced and what they saw. And when they were writing to other churches that had God had planted and they're giving them encouragement, what's at the center of everything that they talk about is... Not just Jesus' teaching. You would think that they would, you know, write letters that would just, you know, like, hey, remember Jesus said this, or remember, the G- and remember that parable Jesus told? Um, that that's not really the content a lot of these gospel letters that were sent out. The gospel letters, the, the, the anchor is that the resurrection happened. And if the resurrection happened, then it has huge implications for all of our lives. So we're just walking through a couple key New Testament texts. It's like a little bit of a, like a tour, a survey, and we're calling it how to survive a shipwreck uh, because the hope of every shipwreck, and you're going to experience a shipwreck in your life. Some of you are in one now. Some of you just got out of one. Some of you, you don't know it yet, but you're heading into one. The hope for every shipwreck at the very bottom is the resurrection of Jesus. And so we just want to talk about what that looks like. Um, you might be here and you might say, uh, you might be skeptical of the whole resurrection thing. And listen, if you're here and you're skeptical about it, we're so glad you're here. It takes a lot of courage to enter into a room where you've got a lot of people here who believe in the, in the historical fact of a resurrection of the dead of Jesus. Um, but you know, you're skeptical and you're thinking, that's absurd, that's, that's, that's silly. I mean, that's just such a, it's just, it's a fairy tale to believe that. Um, I, just, if, if, I just want you just to, just to pause, just to pause that, that feeling right there, because I just want you, and this is an important question for all of us to ask, many of you believe in the resurrection, but, but I just, it's important to pause and just ask this question, what if it's, like, what if it's really true? Like, what if it's really true? If it was really true that Jesus rose from the dead, then what does that mean? What does that mean for us? And uh, for the gospel writers, they understood that, man, if it is true, then it's it's a game changer. It's a game changer. Nobody experienced the resurrection and said, wow, truth really is stranger than fiction. You know, like, wow, what a crazy world we, we, we live in. You know, and like there was a resurrection. Boy, howdy. You know, like that was nobody's response. Everybody's response after the resurrection was, if this really happened, then it means everything changes. And so uh, that's what we're looking at. So we're going to look at Peter. Peter is a really famous uh, character in, in, uh, in Jesus' story. He was one of the earliest followers of Jesus. Remember, he's a, he's a fisherman. He was fishing, and Jesus says, Peter, I've got a new job for you. And uh, Peter was, uh, was, one of the, was you know, one of the leaders in, in the early church. I mean, Jesus said, Peter, I want you to, to, to be a leader. Remember that Peter was, was one of the two people that betrayed Jesus. We sometimes forget that. We, we all remember the kind of the main betrayer, you know, remember, remember his name? Judas. Remember, everybody remembers Judas's name, but we forget sometimes that Peter 
um, had his own little stunt of betrayal um, where he denies Jesus several times. But then, you know, but then he is one of the first people to encounter the empty tomb. And he's one of the first people to sort of encounter the risen Jesus walking around talking. And then Jesus kind of has this really cool conversation with Peter. He says, Peter, I want you to be a, I want you to be a leader um, in, the, in the church. And so Peter um, was, a, was a key figure in the early church. And Peter is writing, what we're going to read this morning is he's writing a letter to a bunch of these early churches um, in modern day Turkey. And these are churches who are facing extreme persecution. Um, these are churches who... Um, who are uh, suffering intensely. Peter is writing a letter to a group of people who, um, who have been tossed in jail for being a Christian. G- uh, Peter is writing a letter to some people here who, who have been tortured because of their confession that Jesus is Lord and King. Um, Peter is writing to a group of people who have had sisters and brothers and nieces and nephews and daughters and sons um, abducted and perhaps killed because they profess that Jesus is Lord. Um, uh, Peter is writing to a group of people who are in the, the context of this, this mighty Roman em- empire. And so these people that Peter's writing to, you know, they, they, there was this system. Like if you wanted to go to the market and if you wanted to buy and sell in the market, if you were, if you were a craftsman of some kind and you wanted to sell your product in the market, then, you know, they, archaeologists have uncovered all this. And, you know, we have a lot of great historical, you know, proof that it was set up like this where you would literally have to go to the marketplace and there would be a statue of Caesar. There would be a statue of the, the, Roman em- the Roman emperor. And you would have to, like in front of a group of people there, or in front of like a little booth, you would have to declare that Caesar is Lord. You'd say Caesar is Lord, and then they'd give you a little piece of paper. Um, or in some cases, you had to light a candle and declare Caesar is Lord, and then you had to take some of the ashes and put it on your forehead like this. And so when you could then, that was the mark that you had declared Caesar is Lord, and that was the mark that you could go in and buy and sell in the marketplace. And if you were unwilling to say Caesar is Lord, then you didn't get to sell your stuff and you couldn't, you couldn't make money. It was an incredibly painful sort of, it was a carry your cross sort of decision in those days to say Jesus is Lord. Because when you say Jesus is Lord, that means that you can't say Caesar is Lord. And did you know, did you know that the early followers of Jesus were, were called atheists? Did you know that? They were, they, were, they were called atheists because they didn't recognize the Roman pantheon of gods. They didn't recognize Caesar as Lord. And so the, the Roman Empire looked at the Christians and said, they're atheists because they don't proclaim that you know, our God is the real God. And it's because they had a different conviction. They saw Jesus, Jesus was alive. He, was, he, was, he, he wasn't dead. And therefore, for them, it was a game changer. He was Lord. And so they would say, no, I'm not going to say Caesar is Lord. And so therefore, life was painful. They're living in poverty. They were getting, they had to meet in secret in some places. And this is still the case today in many countries around the world. It's a very, in many countries in the world, it's a dangerous place. So when we read this passage, I know we're in like Western, you know, Western sort of Christianity culture. I know that, you know, in some of your contexts, it's hard to be a Christian. But let's remember that there's still places on this planet where, where Christians are being killed, where Christians are being tortured. We know what happened in Sri Lanka just, just a little bit ago. Uh, churches getting, getting, you know, shot up because people, because people are there to gather to, to proclaim Jesus is Lord. So it's happening all over the place. Um, I want to talk, I want to read this passage of scripture that, that Peter is going to write here. By the way, this passage is, uh, is an epic paragraph. It's, it's like, it's a, it's a one long run-on sentence in Greek, all right? So your English teacher would just, would freak out by this, by this paragraph. 
Probably some of your moms would just be like, oh, this is horrible. Um, but like, this is like, you know, this is like a power sentence, okay? You know when a, like an electric guitar player plays like a sweet power chord, you know? It's like, like Bill, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, you know, like, you know, like, like that sort of thing. This is Peter's, this, what Peter is gonna, what is writing here. Um, and one last disclaimer before I read it. Is last week I talked about suffering and pain and how to survive a shipwreck. And then even before Easter, I, was, I talked a lot about like suffering and pain. And I kind of was approaching this week and I was like, man, I've talked a lot about suffering lately. And um, maybe I'll switch it up. And, um, and, then I, and then I remembered something, two things. One, I remembered that for those of you that are in deep suffering then right now, then maybe this is, this is exactly what you need this morning. Um, but for the rest of us, remember this. Remember, you might not be in a place of suffering, but I want you to remember that for most of human history, people have lived their lives with suffering right around the corner at, a moment, at, at any moment. That your life expectancy for, for, for centuries and centuries was very short. Um, a, a, you know, a toothache, like a, like a rotten tooth could be the, your demise very quickly. I mean, just, you know, and not access to, you didn't have access to, he- to health care. I mean, there was all these regimes always taking over your country and your land, and so people are always getting slaughtered and killed. Um, if uh, we, We're probably the only time in history where you aren't a human being that has a, fam- a close family member that hasn't been abducted, killed, tortured, or maimed, or died young of disease. That most people have lived that way. So let's remember that. Let's remember when we read this passage of Scripture, we're standing in solidarity um, with humans all throughout history. Now, um, again, (laughs) I said it was my last disclaimer, but it's not. Um, uh, Before I read the passage of Scripture, the other reason why I decided to preach on this this morning is I was actually watching a debate this week, and I saw this, this little portion of the debate, and I thought, man, that's exactly what I'm trying to say. Like, that, that's exactly why we, need, why we need to listen to Paul's words here. So I'm going to show you a little clip from a debate. You guys ready to watch a little video clip? Okay. Oh, yeah. We got some excited. Okay, video clip. Listen. Here, let me set. Oh, wait. I'm not ready. Hold on. Wait. Okay. No, it's, just leave it off. It's fine. Let me explain it. Here, here's, what, here's what's going on in the clip is this is a debate that's happening at the University of Southampton in London. It's, um, it's by two gentlemen. John Lennox is going to be sitting on the right, and he is a professor at Oxford. He's a Christian, um, and he's, he's Irish, and he's a professor of mathematics. He's a mathematician, and he goes around and he does, he does uh, uh, debates, debates atheists. And the atheist in this conversation is his name. He's on the left. His name is Peter Atkins, and he's professor also at Oxford in the, in the realm of chemistry. And they're having a debate. And the, the debate is, the big question of this debate is, can science explain everything? And I'm just going to show you this clip from it because what they start to talk about is it gives us, it's, it's exactly why we need to listen to Peter this morning. Uh, let's take a listen. You see, skepticism is a wonderful thing. The Greek word means to check out from a distance. And some of you will be checking out partners at a distance. But you know as well as I do, in order to have a meaningful relationship, you have to give up your distance. If you want to get to know me, sooner or later, you'll have to give up your distance and I'll have to give up my distance. But if we're sensible, we'll not do it without evidence. And so... It's a question of that greatest commitment of all, as I believe it is, which is, is to Christ. Making that step of commitment is for some people difficult 
but it's in the end the only way to test if the thing works. Do you have any advice for this long-standing atheist who says he's feeling suddenly yes. born? Yes, it's, it's like John's, but has a slightly different thrust. It I is, thought it might. <laughs> it is to hang on to his commitment, but it's to hang on to his commitment to rationality. Oh. I would want him to hang on to his commitment to rationality, of course, too. You can't be rational and a Christian. Right. <laughs> Any response, Peter, John? The yes, gloves are off. Yes, Peter. <laughs> Peter. Yes, I have a response. What do you say to a Nobel Prize winning physicist who's a Christian? Grow up. <laughs> well, between 1900 and 2000, 65% of Nobel Prize winners were Christian. Yeah. Can you understand, Peter, how saying that might come across as incredibly arrogant? No. No. Let's go to another question. <laughs> um, uh, this is one I think for you. I'm prepared to uh, this is, uh, conflict my okay. Okay. Is, is, Go ahead. Here's one for you. I think this is aimed at you, Peter. If there is no purpose, what motivates scientists to do what they do? Well, they've got to get through life somehow. And, Why? Uh, and... Uh, and, and I, th I think getting through life by in, in increasing the depth of your understanding of this glorious world is, to me as an academic, um, a, a wonderful way of f filling in those few decades of um, consciousness. But Peter, that only works for brilliant people like you. I think of the masses of people who haven't got our privileged yeah, no, we're education. Not being sentimental now. We're, no, not yeah. factual. Factual. No, the yeah. vast majority of people will never get within yeah, light years of your do, understanding you, of the universe. You, with, the with your Christian background, would delude them into thinking that once they're dead, they're going to be jolly happy uh, because you know, it, it's, life is a trial, it's a test, it's a preparation for death and they're going to have a wonderful time once they're dead. I think that is such a delusion that it, it's, it's, it, it's inhumane. But I, can, I agree that it might be sensible in some cases. But if there, there is, is a no God, hope. Peter, you're, you're deluding people in a big way. Huh. Well, you're telling them there is no God, there's no there life isn't. after death, there's no resurrection, there there's no. no ultimate hope in your atheism. No. Absolutely. I, I know that... So know, it's what, hopeless, ultimately. I, I, have, um, um, uh, I have no hope for life after death, uh, but I do have every hope for enjoying this life while I have the privilege of being alive. Yes, but That's many people hope. don't. And the vast majority of people, for instance, will no. never see justice in this life. Yeah, and no. if death is the end, as you say, they'll never ever see justice. No, I can agree. That if, we're not, if we're no longer talking about the truth, we're talking about <laughs> um, helping people you get through... You believe in truth. If we're no longer talking about truth, or we're helping people get through often very difficult, challenging lives, then I can see that in some cases religion can be palliative. It can be a great comfort to them. Uh, it's a false comfort... But, you know, they don't know that. And, uh, and it might just help them get through difficult times. I have no objection to that kind of therapy. But to confuse that with truth 
is, to me, intellectually inimical. Let's go to another question. Um, kind of long, I know, but fascinating, fascinating. Do you see what they're saying? Yeah, you see what they're saying? Um, they're saying, they're saying that uh, man, if there's, if there's no resurrection, yeah, there's, no, there's no hope. And uh, Peter Atkins says, says, that's fine because I'm going to enjoy this life. But the fact is, the fact is, many people, many people, if that's the only hope, man, that is, that's really hard. That's really sad. And so therefore, what Peter has to say just screams out to humanity all throughout the decades, all throughout the centuries. Listen to what he has to say to people who are suffering and hurting. Here's what he says. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles scattered through the provinces of Pontius, Galatia, uh, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. And then here's the power sentence. He says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief of all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when, when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So much in here, guys. Um, but I just find it fascinating. This is about two days, or sorry, two decades after the empty tomb. And what's the first thing that Peter wants to tell people who are suffering, people who are hurting, who are going through trials, people who have been, had their house graffitied by their neighbors, people who have been beat up in dark alleys by their coworkers, people who have been abducted because of their faith. What's the first thing that Peter thinks to tell them to give them hope? The resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus. That's the thing that he goes to. Um, and we just got to camp out on this verse right here. It's in verse 3. It says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In, this great, in his great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So much in here. But real quickly, we just have to just pull it apart a little bit. First, first Peter says that the resurrection isn't just a nice story, but actually it does something. It actually causes a new birth. This isn't the first time we've heard about this, the new birth in the scriptures. Jesus had a conversation with this guy named Nicodemus, where he looks at Nicodemus and he says, Nicodemus, you've got all this great stuff. You're doing all sorts of good things, but it's not enough. You need to be born again. Something has to happen. You have to become new. And for these early gospel, gospel writers and in these, early, in these early letters to these churches, 
the, the message is, oh, don't just, you know, we're just not following Jesus just because it's some nice stories that gives us some hope. No, no, no. It's that when you put your faith in Jesus, that literally, literally you become a new kind of human. It's the new humanity that we're stepping into that Jesus is the precursor of. That Jesus, in a way, is, he's, he's the new, he's the human. He's the human that, that we should be, but we can't be. Jesus is this new humanity, and when we follow him, we slowly become like him. He's formed in us. And so this hope that we have is that when we, when we proclaim that Jesus is Lord of our, over our lives, something happens. There's a new birth. You become a new kind of person. And what are you birthed into? You're birthed into a living hope, a living hope, not a, not a, not a sort of like a, a pipe dream but a living hope, a hope that's alive, a hope that's, that's like actively moving and working in our lives. And how, how does all this happen? Is it because like you, you went to church or is it because you, know, you, you did some good deeds? It's not, it's not based on those things. This new birth that we experience into this living hope is, just, is because Jesus rose from the dead and the tomb is empty. This living hope. This last week, I read, I read a book. It's a famous book that has been on my list for a long time. It's by this guy named Viktor Frankl. And it's called Man's Search for Meaning. It's a very s- small book. And this is a book. This is a, uh, a, an Austrian psychologist who was abducted and taken into the Nazi concentration camps. Viktor Frankl lost everyone in his family, everyone in his, in his life, except for his a sister. A sister survived the Holocaust, but everyone else in Viktor Frankl's world um, didn't survive. And Viktor survived his time in the concentration camp, but that book, The Man's Search for Meaning, is this, is this story about uh, his experience in the camp. And one of the things that got him through was, was he would sort of, as they were doing manual labor, because they all had to do manual labor, Viktor Frankl would sort of counsel people as they would work together. And Viktor Frankl just took a lot of notes, and, he, and, he, and, he, and he was, he's reflecting in this little book, he's reflecting back on what, what got people through those concentration camps. What got people through? There were some people who, there were some people who, uh, who let the, the terror and the torture and the horrendous conditions get to them so deeply that it, it took away their hope. And for those people, they didn't survive long or they, become, they became like animals. They just, they, 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 the brutalization that they experienced made them brutal. The people that didn't have any hope, it just turned into turned into that. But then there was other people in the camp that even though there was crazy, crazy experiences that they had, that they, they seemed to do it with, with, with a sense of dignity. Why? What was the difference? And that's what his book is all about. And the difference, as you would imagine, the difference is that there were some people in those camps that they had a, they had a hope. They had a hope that was, that was, that was based on something not, not there, and it wasn't based on a thing or it wasn't based on a perfect person. It was a hope. You could say it was a living hope that, 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 that was based on something that couldn't be taken away by the Nazis, that the worst concentration camp, that even death couldn't take away from them. And it was those people that, that they thrived. They, well, they didn't thrive, but they, they survived, and they were able to get out um, with, uh, you know, with their lives again. 
Um, this is what marks human beings different from all other animals. Uh, we're, you know, we're, we're, we're with the animals in some ways, but in many other ways, we're absolutely different. And scripture speaks to this, that we're made in God's image. We're not just animals. We're made in his image. But one of the things that marks humans as different than other animals is that humans can't survive without hope. That we have this need for it. We have to have it. Otherwise, we just shrivel and die. And that's very different from every other animal out there. Um, consider the shark. Can we consider the shark for a moment? Let's consider the shark. The shark um, wakes up in the morning, although the, I don't think a shark sleeps. I don't know. <laughs> Somebody else that knows more about sharks should be talking during this part of the sermon. But, you know, a shark wakes up and a shark doesn't worry about what it's going to do tomorrow necessarily. A shark doesn't worry about what it's, it doesn't worry about its five-year plan. A shark doesn't worry about what other sharks think of it. A shark doesn't worry about what we think of it. A shark just wakes up as a creature of instinct and goes and hunts a seal so that it can survive another day. Um, that's what sharks do. And we don't fault sharks for that. In fact, we expect that sharks are going to do that because it's a shark. But we expect something more from a human being, don't we? We expect more from a human being. We expect a human being to not act like a shark. And the reason is because we're a human being and there's something in us where we, where we need this, this, this hope. And Viktor Frankl just experienced that in the concentration camp, that there's this hope that we need. That no matter what shipwreck comes, that if there's this living hope in us, that everything is going to be okay. Even though we might be killed, even though we might be tortured, even though we might experience great loss, that what's most important about us cannot be lost. And if you were here last week, you remember that we said that you might lose your ship in a shipwreck but it doesn't mean that you need to lose your faith or your hope or your soul, or your soul. Um, Peter goes on, he says this, remember the, this part in the passage, he says, he says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus. In his great mercy, he's given us a new birth, living hope, and then he says this, and also into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. Who, uh, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. He says that there's an inheritance. So you've got something in the bank. Did you know that? You've got something in the bank that is sure, that is certain, that cannot be taken away from you. There is nothing, there's hardly anything in this life that's certain, right? There's hardly anything in this life that's sure. In fact, what do the French say? What are the two things that are, that are sure in this life? Remember what they say? Death and taxes, right? There's, your life, our lives are so uncertain. And listen to what Peter's saying. It's beautiful and profound. He says, even though there's so much uncertainty in life, you don't know. You don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. You don't know, you don't know what you're going to experience in this life. But because of this new birth that we have into a living hope, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you've got something in the bank. You've got something that cannot be taken away from you. You have something that if you follow Jesus and if you proclaim he's Lord of your life, that you've got something that's sure, that's certain. That's an incredible promise. Either he's lying to us or he's, or he's right or he's true. And what if he's true? That changes everything. Um, uh, and then he goes on. And then listen to the response that we're supposed to have. He says, in, the, in this we greatly rejoice, he says. In this we greatly rejoice, 
Um, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief of, of all kinds of trials. And then he says all this other stuff. Remember, he says that these have come so that your genuineness of your faith, greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory. And then he gets to this end part. He says that if you believe, if you believe in him, then you're filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. What's supposed to be the Christian's response to trials and suffering and pain and loss and grief in this life? What gets to be our response as Christ followers? What, is, what does Peter say that it is because of the resurrection? I highlighted it in yellow. So you got to somebody say it. It's right. Joy. 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 Now we hear Paul say, no, you can respond to suffering and pain and grief with joy. We, we read that and we say, that's a little... That's like, that's a little mental. That's a little, that sounds like denial to me. I don't know if some of you f- feel that way, but when I read a passage like this, it's like, what is Peter trying to say? That we're just supposed to like turn that frown upside down, you know? That when we experience, you know, suffering, that we're just supposed to be like, thank you, sir, and I'll have another, you know? Like, we'll just be, we'll just be like, oh, I love all this pain and suffering, God, and just sort of paste on a, on, like a fake smile, and, and uh, that's, that's not what he's saying. He's saying something so deep and profound here. He's saying, no, it's not turn that frown upside down. In fact, is Peter, is Peter a, 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 a stranger to suffering and pain? Oh, no. Oh, no. Is Jesus a stranger to suffering and pain and grief? Oh, no. And is Jesus' attitude, you know, to just like, oh, just everything will be okay, you know, like shiny, happy people holding hands. No, I mean, Jesus, he feels the grief, he feels the pain. Peter feels the grief and feels the pain. Christ followers get to feel the grief deeply and feel the pain. We walk through it and we experience it, and yet, and yet, and yet because of this living hope that we are born into because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and because we have an inheritance that's sure, that's certain, therefore, we have the ability to stare down suffering and pain. And for some people, it's gonna, if we have a, we, basically we have a choice. Either suffering and pain and loss and grief in your life is gonna turn you into a shark. It's gonna turn you into an animal or it's gonna turn you in, into, it's just gonna make you angry, more angry and more disappointed and you're just gonna be filled with bitterness. It's either gonna do those things or, or, as Christ followers, because of the resurrection, we can have a different approach. It can actually cause, we can actually have joy in the midst of it. How are you supposed to have joy in the midst of suffering? How? Well, it's in the text. It, it all comes together in this, in this visual, uh, in this sort of metaphor of, of melting down uh, metal. It's, it's here in the text. We'll highlight it in yellow. It says, it says, these have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise. Now, I'm not a metalsmith, although I wish I was. because That would be awesome. But I've watched a lot of this show on the History Channel called Forged in Fire. I don't know if you've seen this show, but it's one of the best shows ever. And um, so I feel like I know a lot about metalworking and metalsmithing because I've watched the TV show. But uh, apparently, here's what you do. You take a, a raw element, all right? You take, you take metal or silver or, you know, or iron or whatever, and you take it from the ground. Somebody mines it out of the ground. And then what do you have to do? You, you have to melt it down. Why? Because it has all sorts of like impurities in it, right? It's got bits of rock. It's got gravel. It's got sand in it. It's got all this other stuff. 
And so you can't get that stuff out of it without melting it down. It's got to get, get, it gets put into intense heat, it melts down, and then, you know, apparently, if through some process, like, I don't know how it works, like, I don't think you use, like, a kitchen strainer, you know, it was probably, it's probably more complicated than that, but, like, you know, what's the, what do they call it? They call it the dross, right? The dross sort of, like, comes to the surface, and then now you can see the impurities, and now you start to, you start to scrape those things off. And what you're left with is something more pure. In some cases, depending on what metal you're working with, you've got a metal that's stronger than it was before. And you couldn't have gotten that unless it went through the fire. And this is what, Paul, this is what Peter is saying. And this isn't new to us. You've heard this sermon before. But man, maybe you need to hear this again this morning. I think we all do. That when we walk through suffering and pain and trial, that even though it's painful and difficult, because of the hope that we have in the resurrection of Jesus, I can choose to look at pain and suffering and trials as, as something like a, it's like a strange, unwelcome gift. It can become for you a strange, unwelcome gift that in a way you can see it as, is this is refining me. This is, this is revealing things in me. This is, this is in a way, this is, a strange way, it's strengthening me. Suffering has a way of doing that, doesn't it? Suffering has a way of teaching us. I think it was C.S. Lewis that said that, God, you, that suffering is God's like megaphone to the world. That it's, it's just one of the things. Now, does God send it? Does God allow it? Man, that's a big question for a whole other series of sermons. I don't got that, that answer for you. But all I know that if you're a follower of Jesus, you, just, you can see that suffering can actually can actually sort of purify you in a way. Um, my best example is that of this is when I was I hiked South Sister for the first time. I was in college and, uh, and I was like, I looked at it from far away and I was like, piece of cake, I got that. And, uh, and I'd never hiked it before. In fact, I hadn't done much hiking at all. And so, and so I like, I, I thought, and nobody gave me any pointers. So I was like, okay, I need a backpack. So I got my like gigantic backpack that I have, you know, for, for camping. And I, I had like a couple big bags of, of uh, you know, like really heavy uh, trail mix. And then I thought, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I might need like an extra pair of shoes. So I brought an extra pair of shoes. And then I brought like flip-flops because I thought maybe at the top I'll like want to take off my shoes and just wear my flip-flops. And so I brought two extra shoes. And, uh, and then like I brought like a, like a hardback book. Because <laughs> uh, I was picturing like halfway up I'm just going to like stop and I'm going to read a little bit or maybe when I get to the top I'll just have all sorts of time to just like read and and so you know I've got this backpack and about two miles in I'm suffering <laughs> I'm suffering my shoulders are just you know and there's still like five miles left to go and I'm looking and I, we haven't even gotten to the hard part yet and you know it's like it's like wow I need to offload some of this stuff right that, you know, so, so, and, and, you know, the next time I hiked it, it was a different story, right? But that's because suffering can sort of be an unwelcome teacher. It can show you things that maybe you're carrying, things, uh, things that you place your identity on that you don't need to place your identity on. I'm going to bring the ship into the landing here, okay? Ship, plane, that's what I meant to say. The plane's coming in for a landing. Here's one of the things that suffering will do. Here's one of the things suffering will do, and it's painful, but it can be beautiful for you. Then one of the things that suffering will do will identify some things in your life that you've built your life on that aren't firm foundations for you to build your life on. Viktor Frankl talks about this in his book. He talks about how um, 
people in the concentration camp, they lost everything. Um, they lost their life's work. Many of them came in as doctors and, 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 and other professions, and they lost that whole part of their identity. Um, they lost their family in many cases. They lost their dignity in a lot of ways. They eventually, they lost the ability for them to move um, well because they, were, they worked so hard. Uh, eventually, they lost um, many of their friends that were there in the concentration camp with them. Um, and then they died. And then they die. And Viktor Frankl's brilliant observation about that is that actually everything that they experience in the concentration camp is something that all of us are going to experience in our lives. It's just that we're going to experience, experience them in a much longer time period than those that experience them in the concentration camp. It's kind of ironic that it's called a concentration camp because it's like everything that happens to a human being that just goes through life. Because see, when you're on your, when you're on your deathbed, whatever age you are, you've, what have, what's happened? You've lost many of your friends. You've lost probably m many of your family. You've, you've, in some ways, you've sort of lost your, your dignity in some ways. In, in some ways, you've, you've lost your life's work. It, you know, that, that's, you know that's, that's, that's behind you now. And in many cases, I mean, that you're just, all you're left with is just, all you're left with is you. And that's exactly what happened in the concentration camp for many people just in a, in a few months' time, but it's gonna happen to us. And what you're gonna discover is, is that what gives your life meaning? If it's based on a thing, if it's based on your life's, life's work, if it's based on a paycheck, if it's based even on a good thing like another person or a family member, guys, those aren't going to be enough to give you a hope and an identity because suffering can take all those things away. Suffering can take all those things away. The only thing that suffering and pain can't take away is what we read about this morning. It's the hope that you have because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So we're gonna to respond to that this morning. It's good news, it's good news. You get to be born anew into a living hope. Why? Because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ.